0: Thank you so much, Preston. Thank God for his grace and mercy on me. And good morning, and thank you for being here today, just ahead of the storm. Let me ask you something. Are you a daydreamer? I uh, had a recurring daydream. I don't know what your daydreams have been about in the past, but I know as a younger man, I had a constantly recurring daydream. It went something like this. See, I was on the basketball team. I wasn't wasn't a starter. As a matter of fact, I was usually that guy. there's about a minute to 15 seconds left, something like that, and we had a, a, a lead of about 30 points, Chad, you, it's your turn. You go in there and you tear it up. Okay, coach, let's do it. So I had this recurring daydream that, yeah, I was sitting in class and there were like three seconds left on the clock. His score was dead tied. It's been a hard Hard-fought battle for the length of the game. Every quarter, the ball goes inbound, comes to me. I hit the three-pointer. We win the game. I'm up on the God's shoulders. They're parading me around and the accolades are being thrown up and the, the psalms are being sung. Chad won the game. Man. Am I alone in that? Something tells me maybe I'm not. Maybe it was a hockey game for you. Maybe it was a football game. But man, I had that daydream all the time. You know, you get that trophy, you make that deal, and and then you know what? People want to be your friend. They'll seek you out. You'll gain popularity. It's all about me. See, I wanted glory. And we know that hard work and sacrifice pays off. But you know what? There's also a warning here. That seeking self-glory will always come with a cost. Even when it's supposedly being done in the name of God. I uh, had a classmate of mine from seminary. He just wrote an article called, it's a very interesting title, listen to this. Studying great evangelicals' lives made me less ambitious. The subtitle was to avoid hurting our marriages and families. We can learn from forerunners in the faith. That article talks about many prominent historical leaders in the church who sacrificed too much. One of the most prominent, John Wesley. We all know the name. He did wonderful things for God and the church, but he also spent so much time away from his wife and from his child that they end up having a very public and nasty divorce. See, at some point, the quest for self-glorification will leave us wrecked, and it's not what we're called to do. As a matter of fact, we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God. What I want to talk about this morning is how do I seek the glory of Christ? How do I make his glory above and beyond the glory of Chad? Because I'm up here every Sunday and you get to see me and uh, it's not about me. And Jesus himself would have the most unconventional pathway to glory and the text we're going to look at comes from john chapter 7 we'll be looking at john chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 if you would please stand with me for the reading of god's word john chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 john 7 1 through 13 After this, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee. He stayed out of Judea because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Now the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, so Jesus' brothers advised him, leave here and and go to Judea so your disciples may see your miracles that you are performing. For no one who seeks to make a reputation for himself does anything in secret. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. So Jesus replied, my time has not yet arrived, but you are ready at any opportunity. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I'm testifying about it, that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. When he had said this, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, not openly, but in secret. So the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast, asking, Where is he? There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some were saying he is a good man, but others, he deceives the common people. However, no one spoke openly about him for fear of the Jewish leaders. You may be seated. Jesus is now going through a trial. And he will be up until his death in the book of John. There's a very mixed reaction about him. Even in the midst of that, though, he is our and their living hope. The only hope for the world is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I can offer no one else any other hope today than what can be found in Jesus Christ. And we see... The hostility, we saw it last week among those who did not believe, the teaching of Christ is not met neutrally, it's divisive, and he's got a very unconventional path to glory, and few are going to stand with him, and we see the the growing crowd of those who stand against him and their behavior and their reactions against him, and this morning I want to approach the text this way. We'll look at it like this. That Jesus, and we've in his own family, and we've seen him before, that this familiarity with Christ is going to deal him dishonor. Coming from his own family. He brings new agendas. His agenda brings controversy. And then finally we'll talk about how do we glorify Christ? Specifically, how do we bring glory to him and not to ourselves? So let's start out then with this issue of Familiarity. And notice the root word of that, familiarity. It's familial, like in family. So, six, month has, six months have passed between uh, the previous chapter and this one. And now we come to a different time of year. There's a, f- a festival underway. It was the time of year called the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And it was a, a time of celebration of God's faithfulness when the Israelites were wandering through the desert. God was faithful to them. He fed them. They lived in something called a booth. As a matter of fact, Jews still celebrate this today. They will build these almost like we call them huts. And during this time, this festival that they still celebrate, they build these little huts. This is what they lived in when they were wandering in the desert. So they would do it again to celebrate. That's what's going on in this, this feast, uh, this time of celebration. Uh, and and uh, it was a three-day festival. And during this time, the text says Jesus was staying away from Judea. Now, if you look at Israel up in the northern part, around that area of Galilee, that's where he's been. That's where he's been hanging out. And then there's a region, if you go down, it says Galilee, Samaria, and then Judea. That was a region, and Jerusalem was in that region of Judea. That's where they were seeking to kill him already. But it was not yet his time. And then he was challenged by his brothers over this. And if you did, if you detected sort of a snarky tone among his brothers, then you were paying attention because they did get snarky with Jesus. Listen to the words uh, of verses three through five. Again, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples Also, may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But then look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. It wasn't out of a place of ministry his brothers were saying this. It was something else. Look at the tone commanding him. What to do? Leave here. Pushing him to reveal this uh, identity. They know he can do miracles, but they don't yet believe he's who he's claiming to be. So he says, go out there and work your magic, Jesus. Promote yourself. This feast was going to draw thousands to Jerusalem. And they could see you. It's time to come part of the big game Jesus see you're just operating in the minor leagues now go big time prove yourself to the majority of the people well what we've seen so far is that simply seeing miracles does not always lead to immediate faith in Jesus and not only this Some of his people have turned away that even witnessed miracles. They were never really his people's. And and then his brothers are actually promoting the same thing that Satan had done. Back in the book of Matthew chapter 4, the devil uh, took him to a high mountain and and showed him the, the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. God's plan, the Father's plan for Jesus is very different from theirs, and it was going to involve a gruesome death on a cross. Maybe what's disturbing about this is most of us assume that had we been there, if we were the half-brother of Jesus, we wouldn't be acting this way. We wouldn't have this contempt. We wouldn't have this tone. We would get it. I don't know if we would. Familiarity, though, with Jesus does not guarantee faith in him. And and the way unbelievers plan to obtain glory for themselves is is frequently contrary to God's way of doing things. See that in Philippians 2. Now, fortunately, two of these half-brothers, James and Jude, they'll become believers. As a matter of fact, they're going to write two books of the Bible under their own names. So there's still hope. But I believe there's a warning here for us that even as you understand Christ's love and you understand Christ's grace and his forgiveness, that it doesn't lead to an overcomfortability, such that when you bang your thumb with that hammer and a name comes flying out of your mouth in a fit of anger or pain. It means resisting the temptation to gossip about people that are part of his body. We don't ever treat Christ dishonorably. And so Christ heard his half-brothers. They spoke dishonorably to him. And then in his response, we see that he is not going to operate according to their timetable. See, they just don't get it. And we see how deeply they don't get it in Jesus' response. Instead, he brings new agendas, new ways of operation he doesn't just run when they say run. Instead, he's got a different response starting at verse 6. He said that my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So he says, my time has not yet come. It's uh, referring that now is not the right time of, of my death. But actually, he's referring to something else. It sounds that way. But he's probably not referring to his death. He uses a similar statement saying, my hour has not yet come. When he talks about his death. He's using a different word here. He's using the word kairos for time saying the time for his going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles is not at hand. He's making it clear that he's operating on a different time schedule, that perhaps these other folks are going to understand. It's been set by his father. Interestingly, though, his brothers are under no such terms. They can go when they please. In addition, he says, the world Hates him, but it doesn't hate them. As a matter of fact, it cannot hate them. Now, why is that? What is he saying here? The answer is pretty simple. He's saying because you are still part of the world. You are still unbelievers. And you don't understand what I'm doing because you don't believe I am who I say I am. The world hates to have its evil exposed, to be convicted of its sin. That is why the brother's suggestion that Jesus show himself to the world is so misplaced. You know, by the world, they mean everybody. But Jesus knows that everybody belongs to the world in a far more negative sense. As a matter of fact, if you look back in the very first chapter, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was created by him. But look at that last part. They did not recognize him. They're missing it. Then think about his brothers. They're aligned with the world. They don't understand his agenda. They can't perceive what it is God's doing. I love what one uh, commentary said. Uh, All appointments that ignore God's time or timing are in the eternal scheme of things equally insignificant. Jesus emphasized my time has not yet come. and. As Christians, we do not let the world set our agendas because it will be more than happy, referring to the world, the world's more than happy to tell you how you should be spending their time because they've got their own agendas. They need you to buy They want to tell you to spend your time, what to spend it on. Even more tragically, what will make you a loved and a valuable person, how you can gain glory. Maybe through your achievements, maybe through the achievements of your kids. Those are both common idols of our time. If God chooses to bring you glory somehow through achievement and through your giftedness, that's his decision. You let him decide that. But in this lifetime, we have to wait on him, on his timeline. And and something else to be stated here, make sure you make good use of your time. They've got incredibly complex algorithms on social media to keep you swiping up and swiping up and swiping up and swiping up. They know just what video to put in there at just the right time to keep you tuned in. So set a timer, for crying out loud, when you you get on YouTube or Facebook or something like that. Don't let it just dog you. So God brings new agendas to his people, and his new agendas will not be without controversy. Look then at the response of the brothers, starting in verse 10, and, and the others, the people in the crowd in the feast. It says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him and at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. He proceeds to attend this feast in Jerusalem on the moving, though, of his father. And this will be the last he leaves for Galilee. His journeys marked with discretion, working on the father's timeline. And even so, verse 11 indicates that the Jews seem to be talking about these Jewish authorities looking for him and and questioning uh, people evidently about his whereabouts. They were hoping he'd be drawn out of Galilee. Again, they're already seeking to kill him. And then in verse 12, there's this muttering. It's It's a whispering. And then there's these mixed responses. Some say, well, he's a good man. But then others say, no, he's, he's leading people astray. That second group thinks he's a sham, but, but nobody's saying anything out loud, really, because there was a fear over the whole crowd of these very powerful ruling Jews, these Pharisees. See, Jesus was a divisive person, not because he intended to be divisive, but because of man's sin. And these people, I'm sure, like those Pharisees of Christ's time, and this is where it gets really dark, were probably quite proud of their piety, even more religious for rejecting Christ. This points to such a problem because we too can be a lot like these Pharisees. It's when we're high-minded and spiritual, and we we believe we're high-minded and spiritual and mature, we're missing something right in front of our noses, because at times we can be contemptuous. Sometimes we glory in the sin of others. There's this German word schadenfreude, and it means that someone's actually happy when they see the demise of somebody else. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine uh, just came up with a new phrase he heard called failure porn. It's when you glory over the failure, and the more prominent the person, the, more, the higher on the pedestal they are, especially pastors and church leaders, and they fall, there's, there's something a little gleeful about it. That is a contempt that we can carry in our hearts when we glory in the sins of others. When we secretly believe we could do a much better job than, than that pastor or those elders. And then you have muttering and whispering all under the delusion that it's concern for God's mission and purpose. In his book called Extreme Righteousness, if you know that title, you'll know the man that wrote it. His name is Tom Hovestahl. He wrote a book about Pharisees. It's been very helpful to me, and I grabbed a line out of that. He wrote, A critical, contemptuous spirit emanates from a self-righteous heart. It's when we're secretly putting someone else down with a disguise of concern, even spiritual concern, that we're actually seeking to glorify ourselves. And Christ changes to the... He makes changes to this long-standing program of legalism, his unwillingness to relent to the political role of king that people want to throw him into and in their, in their sin and their unwillingness to examine their own hearts. It brought controversy. But it all points to this unconventional path of glory that Christ is on. So we're called to bring glory to Christ. Well, how do we do that? I want to suggest three ways. They come, up, they come from this text and one from a different text. One, uh, first of all, by being his student. By being his student. Those people around him were not willing to humble himself, themselves to do this. And are you immersing yourself in, the, in Christ's teachings? Are you revealing Christ to your own family and others by being a dedicated disciple yourself? Are you sharing what you're learning? And if you aren't learning anything, then why? Why? don't let opportunities slip you by we've got a number of things here at our church but then there's a plethora there's never been more media out there to teach us as a matter of fact you can hear the spoken word of your favorite author on the internet there was a couple named louis and jeanette there were a couple in their 80s Um, they've got a 55 year old son named louis who's severely mentally handicapped he'd always been his whole life. talk about this in a in a book they'd written but he'd been all his life he's been cared for in a really fine institution and his, and his christian parents they were always concerned about their son's spiritual development and prayed for him often but their son only speaks uh, an occasional short phrase or a few isolated words at a time so there was no way to under, to know if he really understood anything about christ and then about the time he was 50 and an amazing thing happened The family was together on a car ride, and all of a sudden, without warning, their son began to speak. He said, You know, Mom, you know, Dad, Jesus was born. Jesus died to save us from our sins. He rose again. Yes, He did. And those are the only complete sentences they've ever heard from their son. And you know what? They are the most important. What we want all of our children to say are those very words. And then secondly, glorify Christ by trusting His timing. Trusting His timing. And and God is working all things out perfectly in this moment. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when things just seem like they're spinning out of control and we don't understand why, no. No. If we're worrying, we're not trusting. If we're scared, we're not trusting. If we're anxious about the times we're living in, we're not trusting. In his autobiography, a baseball player named Buck O'Neill, he talks about being a black man who played professional baseball before African Americans were allowed to play in the all-white major leagues. And by the time the color barrier was broken in '47, he was considered too old to play uh, in the big leagues as most of his teammates and many of his friends were bitter about missed opportunities that they had but he wrote this he said at a reunion of all the league players in ashland kentucky in kentucky a reporter uh, from sports illustrated asked me if i had any regrets coming along as i did before jackie robinson integrated the major leagues and he said this is what i told him waste no tears for me i didn't come along too early I was right on time. He said, I don't have a bitter story. I truly believe I have been blessed. And the title of his book reflects this cheerful optimism and his belief in the sovereignty of God. And despite missing fame and fortune, he chose to title his autobiography, I Was Right on Time. God always operates right on time. Jesus knows exactly when he's coming back. He knows exactly where he wants the state of the world to be before he gets here. And we can trust his timing. You can trust his timing to bring you the right spouse, to bring you the right job, to bring you the right situation. Whatever you're waiting on, you can trust him. And then finally, glorify Christ by loving your spouse. Glorified by loving your spouse, the Bible it clearly tells us that God gives some the gift of a husband or a wife, and it says the man who finds a wife finds a good thing; she is a blessing to him from the Lord. Proverbs eighteen twenty two. Kevin and Karen Miller they wrote a book called More You Than Me, and they wrote in that that Christian couples need to recapture the incredible potential of their relationships. If you're married, God didn't make a mistake in bringing you together. Being married is not a cop-out, not a second-best situation. That marriage gives you opportunities in ministry that times you wouldn't have otherwise. And some Christians, they write, may say, yes, it's nice to be married. It's nice to have the companionship. It's great to build a family and raise children from the Lord. But they might still think, but, but what I'm doing is like not as committed as a single person out there on the mission field. That's a a higher state of being. And God's Word challenges that idea. Because, see, the best way any Christian can serve God is to glorify Him in the place God has called them. Wherever you may be, whatever you're doing. Married. And if God called you to marriage, the ultimate service you can offer is to glorify, glorify Him as a married Christian. And you do that by loving your spouse well. Oswald Chambers once said, Never allow the thought, I am of no use where I am because you certainly can be of no use because you certainly can be of no use where you are not. And God considers a spouse a gift and a blessing in serving him. Sometimes I think perhaps one of the godliest ways we can provide a picture to an unbelieving world of a loving God is to have a good loving marriage where we love and honor our spouse above ourselves matter of fact marriage is a picture of how Christ loves the church so again putting this all together glorify Christ by being a student trusting his timing and loving your spouse you know I wish I didn't try to glorify myself as much as I Do. And as I was reading Tom Hovestall's book called Extreme Righteousness, and if you know Tom, he's he's a wonderful man to talk to. He's been a a mentor and a guide to me as I've been pastoring here at First Baptist Church. But what struck me more than anything is reading through that book, talking about these Pharisees, talking about their wickedness, talking about their self-righteousness, talking about how sinful they were and how many times he still wrote in that book. And I am no different. We need to recognize in ourselves that we're here to glorify Christ and not ourselves. But we have a tendency to glorify ourselves. But thank God He is gracious and He's merciful. And He still lifts us up and loves us where we are. So much so that He died for us. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives that glorify you. I pray that when people think about First Baptist Church, that the first thought in their mind is you, that you are high and lifted up, that you are holy and mighty, and that you deserve all the glory and all the praise. And Lord, I pray in the short time we have in our lives, from now till whenever you take us home, that we be in the business of making you look good. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to remind you that I would love it if you have anything.